0: Welcome to Main Street Vegan, a lively hour with host Victoria Moran, best selling author and the OG of vegan living for over 40 years. She and her guests have got the goods to help you look and feel amazing, make a difference for animals, and discover the soulful side of the vegan journey. Now, here's Victoria. Act as if
1: what you do makes a difference. It does. The psychologist William James said that, and I agree with him. But there are degrees, there are a lot of good people doing great things. And every now and then, you get yourself a Gandhi, or a Mother Teresa, or a Mandela, or a Dr. King. And I personally believe that today, we're going to be talking. With one of those. And I'll bet that at the end of this hour, I will never be the same. And I would further wager you won't either. Hi, everybody. It's Victoria Moran. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Podcast. And this is a very, very special episode. My guest today is someone who doesn't just have a good heart and honorable intentions. He is all heart and all honor, and I admire him to the moon and back. And if you know about him and know about his work, which I'll bet many of you do, you probably feel exactly the same way. Wayne Shung is an attorney, an activist, co-founder of the Simple Heart Initiative, and previously leader of the Animal Rights Network, Direct Action Everywhere, which he also co-founded. This past fall, he was convicted of felony trespassing for his role in open rescue of sick and dying chickens from Sunrise Farms in 2018, and he served time in jail. He's also currently barred from communication with certain friends and colleagues, and I can speak personally in saying that he is the bravest person I know, and I am humbled and massively grateful to be speaking with him for the second time on this program welcome Wayne.
2: Well, thanks for those kind words and i don't know how true some of them are i i think the better characterization of myself is just i'm just a guy who really really loves dogs <laughs> <laughs> that's where it all started for me and i was just introducing you to one of my little guys who is actually a livestock animal himself he was rescued from a dog farm in china all these things i do that people characterize in such positive ways i it just. It really just comes down to the fact that these are my family members. I mean, I, from my early childhood, the dogs in my life, and then eventually all the animals, they they were not just friends. They were not just abstract beings who I thought should be protected from violence. They were my family. And so everything I do comes down to trying to fight for the people who are in my family, including Oliver, who's sitting right next to me.
1: Well, you do an amazing job and you inspire so many of the rest of us to go that extra mile and do more than we would have done had you not been out there. Your dad, I read, worked in animal research and that had some influence on you. Tell us about some of that early stuff.
2: My dad is an incredible human being who's generous and has contributed so much to the animal rights movement, but he started his life as a vivisector. sector. Um, He grew up very poor in Taiwan and. Came to the United States to do an organic chemistry PhD, actually in Illinois, the University of Illinois. And it was back in those days that molecular biology and the intersection of chemistry and biology was really just coming to fruition. Watson and Crick had discovered DNA not too long before my dad entered his PhD program. And so for the first time, people who were chemists and understanding the most basic physical bonds between the particles of the universe were also interested in living beings. Because we were really just starting to understand the intersection between life and chemistry. And one of the things he had to do was uh, expose various animals to various chemical stimulants and chemical toxins of various sorts. And uh, my dad was definitely not an animal when he was growing up, but he came to this country with a very clear purpose to establish a a lifeline for his family in Taiwan, to build a future for his family. Because... You know, his family fled China in 1949. He hopped onto a rocky boat with his mom um, as an infant. And they had to throw everything they owned onto that ship and flee because communists were coming and they were going to kill them all. And so growing up in that environment, when you're taught every day of your life, could be your last when your basic provisions in life are never taken for granted. he came here just thinking, you have to do what you have to do to survive. Um, that's what he always taught me you know keep your head low don't cause so much trouble and do what you have to do to survive because that's kind of the, the way he was raised and one of the things he had to do to survive was kill animals um my dad has always been a very gentle person and so when he started as i think a initially a graduate student eventually a postdoc doing some experiments on animals it, it troubled him and in particular back then animal experimentation always involves suffering. But back in the, the 70s, when he was, I think he started grad school, and I believe it was 1971, maybe it was 1972, or maybe it was 1969, I don't remember the exact year. But a lot of the methods they were using to experiment on animals were just a lot more brutal. So I'll just give you an example. Um, nowadays, there are all sorts of sanitized ways. They, they kill the animals when they're going to basically vivisect them, when they expose them to some toxin, they're giving them some chemical or pharmaceutical, and they want to figure out what the pharmaceutical did to this animal body. Um, so they use CO two to asphyxiate them, and these ways of killing animals all involve an incredible amount of suffering. And if nothing else, they're kind of shorting an animals' life, who could have lived uh, and wanted to live, a, you know, a life just like you and I, and just like our dogs and cats, and just like all sentient beings. And the ways we kill them now, things like CO two poisoning, it is a poisoning process that's not euthanasia. So. Um, at least outwardly, they often don't seem quite as brutal. Well, back when my dad was a grad student, they still did things like decapitating animals with scissors. So he would literally take a an industrial pair of scissors. And when they were experimenting on mice, for example, and I don't even know exactly why it was important to decapitate them. I think it had to do with just something about preserving the organs. They had to die very quickly and you had to prevent them from moving. You know, and if, if the brain is still attached to the body, the will still move. So the thing they did was they... He literally had to like basically grab these animals with some sort of vice, like device. I I think he made with his hand and take a huge pair of industrial scissors and decapitate them. And for someone who was not a violent person and who was a very gentle person, it was very very difficult. And he's told me about how you know traumatizing that experience was for him. Um, But again, he did it because he thought he had to. And I think it's it's pretty interesting to see now fifty years later that not only does he recognize, I think he didn't have to do that. But he's recognized there's a, a huge universe of activity that many of us are told we have to do this, involving cruelty to animals, that simply isn't true, and and so you know it's one of the many lessons I think he's imparted to me over the last five decades that some of the things we're taught that we have to do, not only do we not have to do them, but um, that that doctrine of necessary evil is is one of the most vile and 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 destructive doctrines in human history, because when you're told you have to do something you know is evil, that's when you stop listening to your heart and you're suddenly prone to doing things that history looks at as an atrocity.
1: Oh, that is so true. I've been thinking recently. I've spoken for a couple of groups of people who are very dedicated to animals in terms of wildlife rescue and companion animal rescue and um, other sorts of work on behalf of other than human beings. And in each one of these presentations, there have been two, three, four, five people in the Q and a who say, "I really want to be vegan." But my doctor says, that because I have XYZ, I have to eat meat. And I juxtapose that with these whole food plant-based people who are dietary vegans and oftentimes, especially at the beginning, not giving animals really any thought at all and yet changing for their health while other people who would love to do it feel they have to stick with the status quo stuff like that just makes me nuts what do you do with it
2: i mean this might surprise you but i i personally think we should be open to people who say i have to eat fish or i have to eat meat or eggs or milk or whatever it is i don't think it means we have to agree with them because i don't think there's any compelling scientific research that human beings require animal products and we've seen entire civilizations in asia uh, including literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of human beings who have lived on plant-based diets and flourished and thrived. And you know, if you look at the scientific research across the world, um, I, I'm not the biggest proponent of veganism for health reasons, for various reasons we can get into, but I, I will absolutely agree with anyone who says that veganism across the world has been proven to be an extremely healthy diet and very likely much more healthy than certainly a traditional American diet and probably more healthy than any meat-based diet we've seen across the world, um, maybe through history. Um, the reason I say we we nonetheless have to be open to that argument is because uh one is I do think there's some biological variability between human beings, and probably some people need a little more protein than others uh some people may need certain nutrients like you know B vitamins that may be a little more likely uh to be found in meat uh but more importantly, I think if we're open to that idea, uh it's more likely. we can find solutions that actually work for people right if we just close ourselves off and say well actually no what you need doesn't matter you know that's that's probably not going to work for most people they're just going to dismiss the entire animal rights and say all right i mean if you don't care what i need then why should i even talk to you um and i think instead what we have to do is build systems and cultures around people that support people in finding what they need without hurting people and also helping them understand what need actually means because a lot of people have. Kind of a, a definition of need that is so focused on their own subjective experience and their own health and well-being, and not the health and well-being of the surrounding community, much less ecosystem, uh, that they lose sight of the connections between all of those things. Right? All of us, first and foremost, need a society and ecosystem that allows all beings to thrive because we we could be violated too at some point if we build systems around us if our ecosystem is collapsing. You know, you might think you need that beef, but we're all going to die if the thermohaline system causes catastrophic climate change. right? And, and so helping people understand that there's a broader conception of need under which all of our interests are linked, including the animals whose bodies are often on our plates is, is pretty important. But you're right. I mean, I, I think it's one of the fundamental obstacles, even just cognitively and psychologically for a lot of the people, because they, they do think the systems of violence are a necessary evil, whether it's animal experimentation, factory farming, slaughterhouses, and showing people that yes, their needs are legitimate, all of our needs are legitimate, but the planet's needs are legitimate, the animal's needs are legitimate, um, the web of life's needs are legitimate, and all those needs are being fundamentally threatened by what we do to animals.
1: So you mentioned a couple of things that I'm finding intriguing. So we always think of, I think there are a lot more reasons for being vegan even than just animals and environment and health, but those seem to be the ones that always come up. So you (laughs) seem to be a proponent of the environmental reasons, but you said you weren't a proponent for health reasons. So tell us why.
2: It's not even so much that I'm a proponent of the environmental or the health reasons for being vegan. And and it's also not to say that I don't think that people who are doing incredible work in those areas. I think, you know, Michael Greger is, is is a legend and has done such important work in establishing the health benefits of a plant-based diet. When I was at the University of Chicago, um, you know, Gideon Ashell and Pam Martin did some of the groundbreaking work on climate change and animal agriculture that was used by the UN's report in 2016-2017. So I'm glad people are doing this work. I'm glad they're advocates who are using those perspectives to endorse veganism. But to me, those of us who are ethical vegans, our comparative advantage and our place in this movement is to speak for the animals. And the reason that's important is because if our culture and our political systems don't become aligned with a more ethical perspective on animals, whatever technologies we develop, whatever environmental practices we undertake on this planet over the next generation, the animals will be harmed in very serious ways. So I'll give you one concrete example of this. This is also surprising to most people when uh, they first hear this about me. But I'm actually not centrally concerned about factory farmed animals or even animals in experimentation. Are really animals in any sort of institutional confinement? I advocate for those animals extensively, and I've spent a lot of my life's work focusing on animals who are being held captive by animals. But primarily, my purpose in doing that is to protect a species of animal called the bristlemouth fish. And no one's heard about the bristlemouth fish, even though they should, especially if they're animal advocates, because The bristlemouth fish is not very charismatic, Uh, they're not very cute, Um, but they're the most numerous vertebrate animal on the face of the planet. They're anywhere from hundreds of billions to hundreds of quadrillions of bristlemouth fish. And the reason we know this is starting, I think, in the 60s and 70s when we started using these deep sea trawls, instead of just catching one species of fish, we just thought, let's just grab them all. We have a school of fish that we know is in this particular part of the ocean. Let's just take everything because it's cheaper and easier. And when they started trawling the ocean. They started realizing, wow, there's a lot of these like little fish. And the bristlemouth fish is about the size of a human finger. It kind of looks like a travel toothbrush, you know, if you have one of those hotel toothbrushes. And they're they're mid to deep sea fish. Um, a lot of people think they look scary and vampiric because they have these bristles and they almost look like long fangs from their mouth. I think they're adorable. So you know, any listeners can Google bristlemouth fish, and you can decide for yourself. And but the important thing to note about the bristlemouth fish is. It is very likely the case that more of them are suffering and dying on this planet right now than any other species of animal, not only on the planet Earth today, but in human history. Uh, And the reason is because deoxygenation of oceans is leading all of them to basically suffocate slowly. Um, When the high levels of the water stay too warm, which has happened because of climate change, we've seen ocean levels rising and ocean temperatures increasing across the world to historically record levels the water doesn't sink because cold water is denser than hot water. And if the water stays hot at the top level, it doesn't sink to the bottom. And the big problem for that, if you're a mid or deep sea fish, is that all the oxygen comes from the top levels of the ocean, sinking to the bottom levels. And so you have these little bristlemouth fish swimming all, all over the ocean, across the entire planet, that for tens, if not hundreds of millions of years, have been the most numerous animal on the planet Earth. And they can no longer breathe because the ocean's no longer mixing, they're no longer getting the air they need. And so they have to go to higher levels of the ocean. They're not well situated to survive at the high levels of the ocean. So for example, their skin is translucent. The the sun that is normally blocked off from damaging our organs by our skin, because our skin blocks off the rays of the sun. And you can see this even more. you can when there's more sun, because your skin needs to be blocked off. You need to block the rays of the sun from damaging your body. These fish can't survive these higher, stratums uh, or higher levels of the ocean, and yet they're forced to do that. And so there's scientific evidence suggesting their populations have decreased by maybe 60% over the last decade or so, meaning hundreds of trillions or hundreds of quadrillions of bristlemouth fish have died off because of deoxygenation of oceans. So this is a long way of getting to the original point, which is, for me, as a, as a vegan who's an ethical vegan who believes that animals are equal to us, and, and for all intents and purposes, for all morally relevant purposes. They can feel pain just like us. They have interests just like us. Um, we can't just change our diets. We have to change our entire way of thinking about our relationship to the non-human world. Because even if we shut down every factory farm and slaughterhouse in the world, there would still be hundreds or trillions or hundreds of quadrillions of bristlemouth fish who we need to save. And they're not charismatic. They're not cute. For most people, for me, they are. Um, but they matter, you know, and, and they're suffering. And, and we have to think about them, too.
1: So what do we do? For them and everybody. I don't
2: know. Um, what I what I do know is that I think human beings are an ingenious species, and we've used our creativity and intelligence for incredibly destructive purposes for hundreds of thousands of years. But I truly believe that if we started devoting our intelligence to to saving animals and rescuing them instead of hurting them and confining them and torturing them and destroying their homes, that some scientists will figure something out that we can do to reverse the oxygenation of oceans and. Obviously, we have to be extremely careful when we talk about trying to modify environments, because again, our record is a terrible one of intervening in 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 kind of wild systems. Um, But what is absolutely clear is if our political and legal system continues to treat animals as just things that do not count at all, um, when an animal suffers, they're legally invisible in our court system, and this is one of the things we're trying to change with the rights to rescue cases. Then there's no chance that we'll help the bristlemouth fish, the pig, in the factory farm. Or even the dog who is being tortured by a dog fighter in, in your neighborhood. I mean, that none of these animals will ever get the protection and dignity and respect and safety they deserve if our political and social culture doesn't shift to recognize that they are not things, they're living beings who could be a part of our family.
1: Where do you see us and our movement right now on a sort of, of linear timeline i often think about um abolition of human slavery in the united states Mm -hmm. and were people working for that in the 1600s feeling that they were close and maybe some people in the 1800s were feeling they weren't close where are we
2: i think we're closer to the end than the beginning um and and my reason for saying that is is twofold one is you can just see see pretty dramatic shifts in public opinion I, I just blogged about this on my sub stack, but uh, I'm going to trial in just over a month in a case involving experimentation of dogs. We rescued three dogs from a lab. And uh, one of the reasons I I did that rescue completely openly, you know, I was not afraid to show the entire world is because I know the public is behind us. Uh, and I I don't mean just on dogs, because the Gallup poll has done a poll on Americans' moral views on certain subjects, including medical testing on animals, for most of the last 20 years. And when they first started doing, doing this poll on medical testing on animals, I think it was about 15 or 20 years ago, 26% of Americans, just one in four, said they were opposed to medical testing on animals. It is up to 48%. And this is medical testing. This is not cosmetics testing. And it's, it's, it's steady progress. It keeps going up and up and up to the point that their most recent poll from last year showed that of Americans are supportive of it. 48% are opposed. And this is not dogs or chimps. This is all medical testing and animals. And across the board, when you see other polling data, it's all going in the right direction. So I always tell people who think it's going to take generations, uh, you're being a, a Debbie Downer. You're being extremely pessimistic because even if we just do as well as we've already done over the last 50 years, this is a very young movement that's only been in existence as a political movement, as a real social movement, I'd argue, since the 1970s. Because um, while there has been some ethical concern for animals, it was always abstract. It was maybe spiritually philosophically based. There was no organized strategic movement to achieve the liberation of animals, you know, until I would argue 1975 when Peter Singer wrote the book Animal Liberation. And really, and Singer wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other thinkers, philosophers, activists, Ingrid Newkirk, Tom Reagan, obviously. Um, but there were, and I know you've been doing animal rights activists for a long time. So you're really a part of that same foundational structure, but it really didn't exist before that. I mean, there are people who cared about dogs and cats. Some people cared about animals and food, but there's never really a movement until the 1970s. And even if we do just as well as we've already done over the last 50 years, you can take a straight line trajectory from how we've done over the last 50 years to the next 50 years, and animal liberation will happen. Um, but the second reason I'm incredibly optimistic is because the, if you look at the social science on change, you know, what drove the anti-slavery movement, what drove the gay rights movement. And we're actually lucky enough, we're going to have a pioneer in gay rights speaking to us tomorrow, Evan Wilson. So um, Evan Wilson is, is a great example for all of us because when he was a Harvard Law student in 1982, he predicted gay marriage would be a constitutional right within his lifetime. And everyone laughed at it. I mean, some of his professors told him, you're advocating for criminal conduct. You realize that, right? It's, it's a crime to be gay. And he said, no, it's not a crime. It's a constitutional right. And just watch in the next 50 years, it's going to happen. And in fact, it took less than 50 years. You know, like Obergefell was decided in, I think, 2015. So it took uh, just about a little over 30 years to go from a crime to a constitutional right. But what you see in gay rights and anti slavery and civil rights and women's rights over and over again is, and, and this is one of really the ironclad movement laws of social movements. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of complexity, a lot of difficulty in answering questions about social change. But one of the laws of social change, and Erica Chenoweth at Harvard is most associated with this, with this law, is the idea that if you can create a sustained, nonviolent movement of advocates engaged in some form of direct action, and I mean direct action expansively, I don't just mean, you know, breaking into a lab or slaughterhouse or rescuing animals. What I mean by direct action is just being the change you want to see in the world, not, not being afraid to say what you actually think. So... Having a conversation it can, it can be direct action if you believe in animal relation and you say what you think, That is direct action to me. It's just not compromising to this. is not pretending that it's okay for an animal to be slaughtered using CO2 rather than electrocution, right? Just saying, no, I don't think we should use animals at all. They are our equals. They are just like the dogs and cats in our own homes. But when you can create a sustained movement of nonviolent direct action, you don't actually need that high of a percentage of people to support the movement to create systemic and dramatic change. And Erica Chenoweth came up with this, this social theory, it's called the rule of 3.5%. And what she did was studied hundreds of movements over the last few hundred years and found that virtually every movement that achieved just 3.5% of the population that sustained nonviolent direct action achieved its objectives. And uh, the reason, yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible finding. And, and she's still doing important work at Harvard um, to this day as a political scientist but the reason that gives me immense optimism as an animal rights activist is while there are ebbs and flows and in my 20 years in animal rights activist, I've definitely seen times when the movement has been stronger and times when it's been weaker there's no question to me at all that there are more people who believe in animal liberation and more importantly are willing to speak truth to power they're willing to say what they actually think about what happens to animals and that is an incredibly powerful sign for change well let us
1: just breathe for a minute on that optimism because I love it and you're right there and you're in the middle of everything and you're a smart guy so I am going to jump onto your optimism and uh, let's just be optimistic for a quiet minute
0: we'll be back are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield, May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive.
1: Welcome back to this conversation with Wayne Shung of the Simple Heart Initiative. Tell us what the Simple Heart Initiative is about.
2: When I was a teenager, I, I read a book by Fyodor Dostoevsky, who uh, in my view, and this is a controversial view, I, I thought he was a closeted animal rights supporter because he wrote about animals in a really beautiful way and and cherished them in the way he, same way he cherished children. There are a lot of Scenes in his various books where he talks about animals in a in a way that makes you think that he understands that that these are living beings who have interests just like us. Um, like uh, my favorite book of his in *The Idiot*, the the main character he's an idiot. He's the idiot who uh, makes for the title of the book is like hated by everyone. Everyone thinks he's a loser. Um, he has no friends. They think he's crazy or stupid or some combination of the two. And he's sent basically to an insane asylum in Switzerland, and he wandered around in the forest because no one wants to talk to him. And he's really sad and depressed because he's been ousted from Russia. His family doesn't like him. He's a prince, but he's a, a pauper prince. So he has no money, no friends, and everyone hates him. And he's walked around the forest, and he hears the birds, and the birds are are looking at him. And he looks at them, um, and he's happy. And he says, uh, and I think Dostoevsky." this is a direct quote from this, this the main character from the novel. There's nothing more beautiful in the world than a little bird and the birds make him happy. And he realizes everyone else in the world may hate me. Everyone else in the world may disrespect me, but look, these birds, they they respect me and love me and appreciate my presence in this world. And there's nothing more beautiful in the world than a little bird. Um, But in another novel by Dostoevsky, uh, there's a line about the nature of evil. It's uh, the Brothers Karamazov, which I still think is the greatest novel that's ever been written. It's, you know, Justusski didn't have editors in the eighteenth, uh, the nineteenth century, so it's it's a little long-winded, but it's well worth trying to get through because it has deep and powerful themes. And the last sentence of the first chapter, which is, in my opinion, the best chapter that's ever been written in fiction, it's just an incredible, elegant, psychologically thrilling depiction of family conflict and drama, uh, is that. And I'm paraphrasing; I'm going to get it wrong, but roughly, that. Uh, all of us on this planet, including the evil, are much more naive and simple-hearted than we think, and we ourselves are too. And the the thesis of of the chapter and and really the entire book is that for all the evils in the world that we attribute to malice and corruption and the inherent negative qualities of human beings or other animals, frankly, a lot of what causes even the most vile things in the world are Our simple hearts and the simple needs and simple fears and emotions that we have that sometimes are not being fulfilled and met. Um, It's it's a cliche to say that you know, and I think it's true that most bullies have been bullied themselves. And I, I, in my experience, as someone who's been bullied a lot (laughs) and has been a bully at times in my life, I mean, I 100% concede that I used to get in fights when I was a Junior high and high school kid, you know. After I joined the football team, and I thought I've been bullied so much, I should bully other kids. That's just what I'm, basically, what I've been taught to do in the world. Um, but even a fan of agriculture, I think the the people who torture and kill these animals, and I, you know, I've seen slaughterhouse workers in China beat dogs to death as they're screaming in agony. You know, and you might think, how could this vile, evil act exist? How could this vile, evil human being exist? And a lot of what is driving their behavior is very simple emotional needs. Um, for the, the guy who's beating the dog to death, in places like Ealing, China, where I rescued my dog, Oliver, you know, and I I came closer to wanting to hurt people in Ealing, China than anywhere else I've been in the last 20 years, because, you know, I'm a practitioner of the IMSA. I believe in nonviolence. I think it's wrong to hurt anyone, even someone who's hurting you. We should always seek to avoid harm to anybody, human or not human. But I came closer to wanting to hurt somebody in China than anywhere else I've been in, in 20 years, because, you know, dogs are close to my heart. As I said, at the start of this conversation, they... They don't have anything for me. They're, they're my family. And seeing these men beat these dogs made me want to hurt them. And then I met a dog meat farmer who was younger than me. He was uh, in his, I think, early 30s. I think he already had three children. Um, he lived in a ramshackle pig farm. He lived inside a dilapidated former pig farm that had collapsed because Smithfield had moved into China. So all the small pig farmers basically driven out of the country. They could no longer produce pigs anymore because how can you compete with Smithfield? He had no teeth, like he had like two or three teeth left, and they were both all yellow, and I have no idea why he had no teeth. The median income of China, and the place where he was living in Yuling, was significantly poorer than the median at that time was $2,000, median. That's like the, the middle person was making $2,000 a year. Um, in one of these dogs for his three children that he's trying to feed in this essentially dilapidated pig farm where they're all living, um, would make him $80. right? So that's almost 5% of his annual income from a single dog being sold to this festival. So he had this very basic need, which is he needed to eat. He wanted his kids to have a roof over their heads, not to be homeless. And the way he saw things, killing this dog was the only way, just like a lot of Americans will say, you know, I hate what happens in factory farms, but I need to do it. And honestly, his argument for needing to kill those dogs is a lot better than most people's arguments for eating beef and chicken at KFC or McDonald's, right? Um, so the the problem was not that this guy was malicious or evil, even though, I mean, my dog to this day is still traumatized from the things he saw that farmer did. I was telling you about, like, the fact that my dog is the only dog I've ever met. He was, like, scared of food. Like, he sees food and runs away because he was living in this horrible environment where every day he had to fight for food and he knew if he went for the food, the other dogs would attack him. So he's scared now, like when there's food around, he kind of runs away from it. And that's just kind of one of the indirect traumas he's experiencing. There's a lot of more direct traumas been through, all of which than sir. Right, buddy? He's sitting right next to him. I think he knows I'm talking about him. Yeah, I'm talking about you, buddy. Um, but for this guy, he saw all that suffering and trauma um, and just put it out of his mind because he thought my family got to eat and $80 is such an enormous amount of money for us relative to what I'm otherwise able to achieve. Um, so what the simple heart is about is, is recognizing that, that so much of evil comes from kind of this almost simple hearted childish desire to fulfill our needs that has either been corrupted our society or distorted. By the traditions that we've been taught, right? And for most Americans, it's not even a systemic corruption that's causing us to engage in violent acts. It's just our own distorted psychological views of animals, right? We, we either put out of sight and out of mind the fact that the chicken and, and cows and pigs that we're eating are tortured in factory farms, or we selectively look at the evidence of nutrition and decide, I just got to eat beef, even though we know, I mean, even WHO has classified red meats as, I think I think they're class two carcinogens now, which means the evidence is extremely strong that these are carcinogenic. So it's not even helping us. It actually doesn't help us. It's Far from being necessary. It's, it's really necessary for us not to eat them. But we tell ourselves because of these distorted traditions and, and ideas we have our had that we have to do this. Uh, but then there's a class of people, including some Americans and maybe even all Americans who are also just corrupted by our system. Um, Poor Americans who live in food deserts and they have no other place to get food than a local McDonald's. It's literally the cheapest place where they can buy meat. And, and certainly that's true of this dog meat owner in China. He did not see another an option. He thought he needed to kill these animals. And so the simple heart is about redefining um, our needs and, and our values through storytelling, through rescue, through impact litigation, to understanding that. For us to really and truly fulfill, and by us, I mean all sentient beings, human and non-human, our needs, our our simple hearts, we have to create systems of compassion. That's a very abstract (laughs) and metaphorical understanding of what we're trying to do, but um, that is what we're about. It's about listening to the calling of our simple hearts.
1: And as you talk about the simple heart, I'm coming back to the huge heart. Because the ability to be able to hold the dog and the dog meat farmer in that sort of circle of compassion, that's big. Most people can't do that, but it's um, definitely worth working toward. So I know that just about everybody listening wants to hear about last Fall and what happened with that particular case and going to jail and what was that like? And I'm sure you're also really tired of talking about it. So I apologize in advance for even asking, but it is something that most people will never experience. Would you be willing to share?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it was one of the most beautiful and powerful and inspiring days of my life that led to that court case. And I'm, I'm still proud of what we did, even though I was incarcerated for it, but um, I'll try to be brief. Cause I could tell this story over 30 hours, 300 hours probably, but the shortened version is there were a number of egg farms across the state of California, including some of the largest in the nation, that were just not complying with the proposition that went into effect in January 2015 that prohibited the intensive confinement of egg-laying hens. And one of them was a company called Sunrise Farms that was not just not complying with the criminal laws of the state of California, I am mean, lying about it, and the owner of the company lied about it in my court case, and the judge didn't allow us to – it was an evidence of um, the falsehoods he had told. But they are also marketing their products as certified humane in places like Whole Foods. you know? so, And uh, so you had a lot of consumers not realizing that their eggs were being produced at a, a place that was engaged in criminal animal cruelty. Um, but they're actually being told that these were particularly humane facilities, that they should pay more for a price premium. So, after years of filing complaints, in in part based on the California Department of Food and Agriculture's own inspection reports, showing that these companies were in fact violating Prop 2, which was endorsed by a record number of California voters back in 2008. So, it was a very popular law that we don't want these animals placed in tiny cages. Um, After years, starting in uh, early 2016 all the way through 2018, we filed you know, dozens of reports to county, uh, states, even city level officials saying, hey, I mean, these laws are not being enforced. We decided we're gonna enforce the law ourselves. And so with about 500 people uh, whom I organized, I walked into Sunrise Farms with flowers in our hands. um, And after a a week of training in nonviolence, at a conference called the Animal Ration Conference in Breakway, California. We went to the farmers, explained to them we were there to help the animals. Um, A number of activists went into the facility and removed, I think it was 37 total animals, all of whom were sick and distressed, Um, some of whom died shortly after being removed from the facility. They were so sick. And uh, contacted the authorities before we walked on explained exactly what we we were going to do. And we had contacted a number of criminal law experts, including former prosecutors, people who... Had spent decades putting people in jail and so understood the criminal law, and including criminal law professors. And my friend Hadar Avaram, who's a professor actually just a few blocks from here in San Francisco, who's one of the state's foremost experts in criminal law, who all concluded that we had the right to do this when the authorities had been asleep at the wheel for so long, when there was a desperate situation on in these farms and that animals were being cannibalized, they were being trampled to death, they were starving to death slowly, that we had the right to intervene and give these animals a. So I had a copy of the opinion, all the evidence we had, and we went to the farm with 500 people and started giving aid in the animals. The problem is the agriculture industry has enormous political influence, even in the state of California. And uh, despite the fact that even the industry and the government officials who prosecuted us never gave us any explanation for why our factual findings would not constitute violations of California law. In fact, I think they effectively conceded that our findings did constitute Violations of California law. Uh, They also concede that there's been no inspection or investigation. In fact, in the years prior to the action on December or May of 2018, the most common response we got from various government agencies and prosecutors about our findings was not that our findings didn't constitute violations of law, but that we are not responsible. So I went to the district attorneys. They said, oh, don't go to us. Go to the California Department of Food I Went to the California Department of Food Ag. They said, oh, don't go to us you have to go to the attorney general. We go to the attorney general and the attorney general says, oh, that's a local issue. Go to the district attorneys." And we played that game of hot potato for years. But despite the fact that no one even really made an argument that the violations of law we were alleging were in fact violations of law, um, they did not start an investigation of Sunrise Farms or any other poultry facility or factory farm. Instead, they arrested and charged me and dozens of other actors with serious felonies, including felony conspiracy. There's a law that essentially targets your speech activity, your political activity, um, and has been widely decried by First Amendment scholars for decades, but they charged me a phony conspiracy. And I went to trial um, last fall, beginning in September of 2018. And in that trial, almost all the evidence of animal abuse was excluded, all the evidence of violations of law by the company was excluded, and even evidence that the owner of the farm was lying, which the judge knew he was lying because he got up on the stand and said, we had no battery cages 2015, 2016, and 2017. And it's just it's just a flat out lie. I mean, she said
0: that's
2: not true 100%. We have hours and hours of footage of penance and in battery cages. Um, and incidentally, you can't lie in court. That's a felony. Um, so despite all that, uh, the judge excluded all the evidence. A jury of 12 residents of Sonoma County convicted me of felony conspiracy, and I was sentenced to 90 days in jail, which I served at the end of the year. And I got out just before the end of the new year.
1: So what was that like? And did you talk to anybody who was interested in what you had to say?
2: Everybody in jail was incredibly interested because um, one of the things you learn from being in jail is that it's not just animals and animal rights actors that our legal system is failing. It's people across this country. In the United States, in theory, you have a right to effective counsel. That right is not being fulfilled. In the United States, you have a right to due process under the law. They can't just throw you in jail without evidence and some sort of procedural integrity in that process. I met so many people who not only didn't get due process, they barely got any process at all. So, for example, my cellmate was in jail because the judge and prosecutor claimed that he had pled guilty to a crime that he just didn't plead guilty to. And I saw the transcript myself. Like I looked at the transcript and it was just like a logistical error. They just forgot that he didn't plead guilty and they threw him in jail anyways. And he kept trying to protest and say, I didn't plead guilty. I I was debating and I was thinking about it, but I never pled guilty. You can't sentence me to seven years in jail. This is not right. And he was, but he just never was able. He's a very poor person. He's Cambodian. Um, he's been in jail a few times before, so no one really listened to him. And and before I looked at his transcript, I don't think even his his public defenders, all of whom have 100 clients and were not paying attention to any one of them, just couldn't figure out that he had actually not pled guilty to this client. And the number of people I met in jail who had basic procedural errors like this that should have led them to not just be vindicated and acquitted and had their charges dismissed, but they're owed compensation by the legal system. No, for these basic failings and the and the fabric of our constitutional republic. Um so my point in giving this example isn't just to inform everybody that there are a lot of human beings who are being screwed by the system too, but uh to demonstrate why when I went to them with the animal rights investors and I explained to them what was happening to him and my friends, 100 percent of them were basically very Like I got people uh, to try using soy milk and eat more plant-based foods, even though the plant-based options in jail are terrible. Partly because people heard about the things I was kind of I had experienced inside of egg farms. Um, One of the inmates painted a picture for my co-defendants who were arrested while I was in jail, and I think every single inmate I asked to sign this in support of them and the right to rescue signed it. Like every single one, one, hundred percent. Like if I went on on the street and asked people to sign. In support of zoe Rosenberg and the right to rescue you're not going to get hundred percent you'd be lucky to get fifty percent but hundred percent hundred percent of these inmates and part of the reason for that is because they had experienced captivity too and they knew what it was like to be trapped in a cage you know because in our jails about half the time we were there we were in lockdown so people were in this tiny sale with you know at most one other human being for 23 24 hours out of the day so it was it was a very difficult experience and I don't that sort of captivity on any living being. But it was also a, a, a pretty amazingly meaningful one in the sense that I, I learned a lot about myself and about human beings and about the basic failings in our legal system.
1: And what has happened after your release? Are you still not allowed to talk with a lot of people that you love?
2: The judge, after I was released, imposed a condition of my release that I um, spoke to an appellate litigator who's going to help us out with our appeal. And he said, I'd never heard of this. You know, I've done how many dozens or maybe hundreds of criminal appeals. I've never heard of this sort of penalty. Um, and the penalty that was issued was was called an associative constraint. So in theory, we have under the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, not just freedom of speech, but freedom of association, right? Because back when this country began, the Puritans and Pilgrims were basically being targeted and told, you're not allowed to associate each other. You can't form this group. We don't like your group. Your group sucks. We're going to throw you in jail just because you're Puritans or you're Pilgrims or whatever your belief system was. And so our founding father said, hey, that's kind of messed up. Don't You can't put people in jail just because they're associated. And so association constraints, just like speech constraints, are constitutionally fraught. You're not supposed to be able to do this. But in rare instances, usually involving violent crime and organized crime syndicates you know if you're part of what's that very dangerous gang that everyone talks about and i don't even know yeah. but that yeah. one that gang and with the numbers, Trump is yeah. always yeah m17 or whatever it is you know yeah. like extremely violent gang in those situations after you've been convicted of a, a violent criminal conspiracy judges have ruled and and appellate courts have upheld these narrowly tailored constraints to avoid future criminal or violent conduct. And in my case, a judge imposed it on a group that's trying to help sick and suffering animals. Um, so I've been told that if I have any contact or come within 100 yards of 14 people, including most of my closest friends, I will be immediately jailed. And it, uh, it's through a process called flash incarceration, which means I don't even get any procedural due process. I think, from what I understand, it effectively is once a probation officer just says that he's violated the constraint, um, I can challenge it if but if I think it's wrong. But the default is once they say that, I get thrown back into jail immediately. Um, and that's going to last for the next two years.
1: So how can you go on with knowing that you're living in a society, we all are, that locks up, people who are trying to end suffering and not just locks them up, but then imposes these bizarre added on things that are supposed to be only for the most violent criminals.
2: Yeah. You know, there's some interesting research on suffering that I think is is very relevant here. And uh, probably the most fascinating study I've seen on suffering is if you look at the difference between veterans from world war II and the Vietnam war, both of these wars are violent, brutal wars. A lot of people maimed. Um, they saw their closest friends killed, sometimes blown to pieces right in front of them. Sometimes they inflicted acts of violence themselves, you know, most notably in Japan, obviously we incinerated in two entire cities of people with two nuclear warheads. And the interesting thing about these two wars, is, even though there are a lot of people who suffered, were maimed and inflicted suffering on others in World War II, there's very little psychological trauma. Like PTSD from World War II almost doesn't exist. In contrast, the Vietnam War uh, created a huge, huge, like I think it's literally millions of Americans. And the main difference as far as psychiatrists can tell, and I actually have a good friend who's a psychiatrist who works with military veterans at the San Francisco Hospital. He's a professor at UCSF, and he treats these veterans all the time. Um, he's treated veterans for years is that the veterans from World War II saw their suffering as having a purpose. While the veterans from Vietnam felt their suffering was pointless. And that makes all the difference in the world. The things I've gone through suck. Jail sucks. Um, I had pretty bad infection on in my arm that hurt like hell, that I wasn't getting treatment. I had people threatening me with violence. Um, I was denied the ability to contact the people I love or even just defend myself because I was still representing myself in a half dozen cases. and. They wouldn't even give me the legal resources I needed to, to defend myself. But because every moment I was there and and even kind of the suffering and dislocation I'm experiencing now from being disconnected from my friends, all of it has a purpose. I know that the reason the industry and the government and the individuals in government who act as allies the industry as opposed to representatives of the people the way they should be acting. The reason they're all acting this way is because they see the power of this movement and the power of our tactics. Right. They understand how powerful it is when people shine light on the suffering of animals, how powerful it is when we tell the stories of little creatures like May, you know, the first bird we openly rescued from a Sonoma County egg farm. Um, her story is featured in the New York Times. Millions of Americans heard about this and put enormous pressure on Whole Foods and these other large corporations to be accountable to their own standards. I mean, much less what vegans and animal rights activists, at least just give the public what you promised them and if you promise them certified humane free-range conditions and those those hands better damn well be certified humane and free-range and also just the historical context for me i just i know that there have been very few moments in history where people have not suffered in ways that are far greater than, than mine i mean that's why i mean while i appreciate all the kind words that you shared with me um i was hanging out with my friend um leslie uh, a couple weeks ago and her family Posted people who were part of the Freedom Summer, who were blown to smithereens by white nationalists and KKK members in Mississippi when they just went down there to register people to vote. You know, there are not many animal rights activists who being murdered um, for our activism. And, and while my incarceration, the incarceration of other political defendants and animal rights is, is unjust, it's unfair, it's wrong, and it sucks. Honestly, relative to a lot of activists in history, we haven't had to pay that heavy of a price yet. And maybe we will someday. Maybe I'll be murdered someday. You know, Maybe I'll be incarcerated for 30 years instead of three months. Um, but even if that's the case, even if I die tomorrow, even if I'm incarcerated for the rest of my life, which in some of these cases, the sentence has been potentially that high. My next case is a potential sentence of 16 years. It's a very long time. I certainly would not enjoy spending, prison, spending 16 years in prison. Even if it's 16 years, even if it's my entire life, if I can go to sleep at night knowing that that suffering or sacrifice had some purpose and and for me and, and for up and rescue activists it's just so easy to see that purpose because i know there is a little creature out there who went from living in a cage not having a friend never stepping outside never even experiencing softness to living a life in heaven i mean julie the bigly rescued from religion farms she, she was psychotic and tormented to the point that she was spinning controllably and howling every single moment of her life because she was so scared. And now she lives in Berkeley, California with her beautiful mom on a soft bed. If I spend 16 years in a prison, but every day I can remind myself, we took Julie out of that cage and she's with her mom, Diane, and she's happy now because of what we did. I'll see the suffering has some purpose and it'll be okay. But the bigger purpose is just understanding that all the sacrifices we make. And not everyone has to sacrifice. God forbid anyone has to risk their life. And lose their life for this cause. But all of us can sacrifice in some ways. Um, whether it's donating a little to an animal charity. Uh, going to your local animal shelter. And walking dogs. That's how I got started. My first act as an, as an animal advocate. Was just walking dogs. Because I told you. I mean, like, I'm just a guy who loves dogs. That's that's who I am. That's what I've always been. Uh, and it's It's still how I define myself. Whatever your sacrifice is. Don't be afraid to take it and know that when you go to sleep at night, after you've sacrificed in small ways or large, you're going to feel better about yourself because you sacrificed for something good in the world.
1: Thank you. So we're going to be linking in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.com to your Substack, But for now, tell us about it. Tell us what people will find when they go there and why it's important to do that
2: yeah this is a uh, this is somewhat hypocritical for me to say
1: <laughs> um we'll let you do stuff because... like a regular human <laughs>
2: <laughs> I guess we're all hypocrites in some ways uh i I'm not a great believer in social media um, okay. i think I think it's very dangerous and it's hypocritical for me to say that because I've also used social media extensively, and probably a lot of people listen to this podcast only know me through social media because of instagram and facebook and twitter and tiktok things. but i'm actually pretty convinced they're dangerous to the future of human civilization and to the movement and so one of the reasons we started the substack is because almost like an antidote to the social media it's almost you know uh because i and i think one of the there are a lot of dangerous things about social media but one of the things about social media that's really dangerous is it's really training our brains to not think in deeper and reflective ways and for those of us who want change, we need people to reflect. We can't We can't just have people rely on their immediate moral intuitions and their mo- immediate moral and emotional reactions. We need people to stop and ask themselves, all right, I mean, this is how I feel about bacon, but what should I feel about bacon, you know? And so um, I started the Substack after my dog Lisa died because Lisa was one of the ones who taught me um, to think deeper about things. And um, I won't tell you the entire story because that would take another hour. But I I blogged about her death after she died. It's a blog called Lessons on Love from a Killer. Um, And Lisa was a killer. Um, I just gave away one of the plot points of the the blog, but she was rescued from a dog fighting circle. She was a killer. And there are a lot of quick judgments people make about killers, human and non-human killers. And a lot of quick judgments people made about Lisa, including judgments I made about Lisa that were wrong. When I slowed down, I thought about what I actually believed, and when I really understood who she was. And she was a beautiful human, human being. She was a beautiful person. To me, she was more of a human than I am in many ways, because to the extent we see being human as a reflection of wisdom and kindness and intelligence, um, she had all those things. And I had to learn those lessons from a killer. But the bigger point of the substack is I think there's got to be spaces for not just animal rights actors, but other people. To slow down a little bit and think about these questions in a deeper way so i mean we send out a newsletter every week um sometimes it's twice a week but usually especially as trials approaching i have a lot of other things i'm working on so it's once a week but it's longer form thought thoughtful conversations and written conversations too so i mean the average blog is maybe 2500 words which people barely want to read 200 characters on twitter so it's you might ask yourself how are you going to convince someone to read 2500 words but honestly, we've seen it grow dramatically. I've been shocked by how many people have been looking for this sort of space, and so yeah, we're going to continue growing it. And my my eventual vision is is not for this just to be one Substack, but for us to create a network of writers. Because I also think podcasting is another example of this sort of long form, deeper format, and it's one of the reasons I really believe in podcasting. While well, I'm glad and 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 really grateful to you for doing this podcast, but maybe this is just because. Of the fact that I've been a writer my entire life, I think there's something really distinct and powerful about the written format. I think there's something about putting pen to paper, or at least, you know, fingers to keyboards nowadays, that helps us clarify our thinking in a way that other forms of dialogue and discussion and analysis do not. Um, because writing things helps not just you, but your readers clarify your thinking in incredibly important ways. So that's what it's about. Um, But the goal is eventually to create space for other people to do the same and for us to have really good conversations on the sub stack that allow all of us to clarify our thinking and therefore help make the world a better place.
1: So can you tell us how to find that or is that yeah, um, the voice?
2: Yeah, it's just blog. That's simpleheart.org. Well,
1: that's easy. Uh-huh. Okay. Beautiful. Well, Wayne, thank you so much, and may you just be wrapped in light and wisdom and inspiration and a sympathetic uh, jury going forward into your next legal experiences. And uh, thanks for all you do, and thanks for taking this time.
2: Yeah, and thank you for everything you're doing, Victoria. And it's it's such an important thing to have these thoughtful, slower conversations. And, and so and I know the amount of work you put in there. So thank you.
1: Well, I love the idea of the thoughtful, slow conversation. This is why I write books. We're working on a feature film, Miss Liberty, about a cow who escapes from a slaughterhouse and the human drama that ensues. And I mean, that's just a killer. I mean, if anybody wanted to do something to become discouraged, it's like, try to make a feature film and yet yeah. <laughs> people keep believing in it and we keep getting pushed forward. So we just finished the website on that. It's uh, MissLibertyTheMovie.org. And I guess we're just all out here doing what we are prompted to do to make things a little kinder, a little gentler, a little saner. And now that we have your wonderful message of optimism to hold on to, well, wahoo. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't get him. All- I'm
2: looking up the. I'm looking up the Miss Liberty website right
1: now. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Talk later. We have some really wonderful actors who want to be part of it, but we can't put them on the website because they're not attached yet. So they're not official, but they're in the wings. And most of them, of course, are are vegan. But we do have one who's ah uh, and very well-known older actor who's not yet vegan, but says he thinks that playing the role would be delicious. And it's like, That's so awesome. do we. So um, life is good. Miracles happen every day. And usually we only need one. So thanks so much to Wayne Shung, simpleheart.org. We will put all of the links, etc., in the show notes at mainstreetvegan.com. And thank you, everybody, for being part of this. I said we'd all never be the same, right? Now, let's go out and make Main Street vegan.
0: Thanks for listening. Find out more about today's episode at MainStreetVegan.com, where you can also learn how to take your vegan or plant-based outreach to the professional level through Main Street Vegan Academy. And join our inner circle at the Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners group on Facebook. See you next time. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it.